Part One, Chapter Five of Australia Felix. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Australia Felix by Henry Handel Richardson. Part One, Chapter Five. Melbourne is built on two hills and the valley that lies between. It was over a year since Mahony or Purdy had been last in the capital, and next morning, on stepping out of the Adam and Eve, they walked up the eastern slope to look about them. From the summit of the hill their view stretched to the waters of the bay and its forests of masts. The nearer foreground was made up of mud-flats through which a sluggish, coffee-coloured river wound its way to the sea. On the horizon to the north the Dandenong ranges rose storm-blue and distinct, and seemed momently to be drawing nearer, for a cold wind was blowing which promised rain. The friends caught their glimpses of the landscape between dense clouds of white dust, which blotted everything out for minutes at a time, and filled eyes, nose, ears with a gritty powder. Tiring of this, they turned and descended Great Collins Street, a spacious thoroughfare that dipped into the hollow and rose again, and was so long that on its western height pedestrians looked no bigger than ants. In the heart of the city men were everywhere at work laying gas and drain-pipes, macadamizing, paving, curbing. No longer would the old wives' tale be credited of the infant drowned in the deeps of Swanston Street, or of the bullock which sank inch by inch before its owner's eyes in the Elizabeth Street bog. Massive erections of freestone were going up alongside, here a primitive canvas-fronted dwelling, there one formed wholly of galvanised iron. Fashionable shops two storeys high stood next tiny dilapidated weatherboards. In the roadway handsome chaises, landaus, four-in-hands, made room for bullock-teams, eight and ten strong, for tumbrils carrying water or refuse, or worse, for droves of cattle, mobs of wild colts bound for auction, flocks of sheep on their way to be boiled down for tallow. Stock-riders and bull-punchers rubbed shoulders with elegance in skirted coats and shepherd's plaid trousers, who adroitly skipped heaps of stones and mortar, or crept along the narrow edging of curb. The visitors from up-country paused to listen to a brass band that played outside a horse-auction mart, to watch the shooting in a rifle-gallery. The many decently attired females they met also called for notice. Not a year ago, and no reputable woman walked abroad oftener than she could help. Now, even at this hour, the streets were starred with them. Purdy, open-mouthed, his eyes a-dance, turned his head this way and that, pointed and exclaimed— but then he had slept like a log, and felt in his own words as fit as a fiddle. Whereas Mahony had sat his horse the whole night through, had never ceased to balance himself in an imaginary saddle. And when at daybreak he had fallen into a deeper sleep, he was either reviewing outrageous females on Purdy's behalf, or accepting wages to kiss them. Hence, diverting as were the sights of the city, he did not come to them with the naive receptivity of Purdy. It was, besides, hard to detach his thoughts from the disagreeable affair that had brought him to Melbourne. And as soon as banks and officers began to take down their shutters, he hurried off to his interview with the carrying agent. The latter's place of business was behind Great Collins Street in a lane reached by a turnpike. Found with some trouble, it proved to be a rude shanty wedged in between a Chinese laundry and a Chinese eating-house. The entrance was through a yard in which stood a collection of rabbit-hutches, while further back gaped a dirty closet. At the sound of their steps the man they sought emerged, and Mahony could not repress an exclamation of surprise. When a little over a twelve-month ago he had first had dealings with him, this Bolivar had been an alert and respectable man of business. 
Now he was evidently on the downgrade, and the cause of the deterioration was advertised in his bloodshot eyeballs and venous cheeks. Early as was the hour, he had already been indulging, his breath puffed sour. Mahony prepared to state the object of his visit in no uncertain terms, but his preliminaries were cut short by a volley of abuse. The man accused him point-blank of having been privy to the rascally drayman's fraud, and of having hoped, by lying low, to evade his liability. Mahony lost his temper, and vowed that he would have Bolivar up for defamation of character. To which the latter retorted that the first innings in a court of law would be his. He had already put the matter in the hands of his attorney. This was the last straw. Purdy had to intervene and get Mahony away. They left the agent shaking his fist after them, and cursing the bloody day on which he'd ever been fool enough to deal with a bloody gentleman. At the corner of the street the friends paused for a hasty conference. Mahony was for marching off to take the best legal advice the city had to offer. But Purdy disapproved. Why put himself to so much trouble when he had old Ocock's recommendation to his lawyer's son in his coat-pocket? What in the name of Leary-cum-Fitz was the sense of making an enemy for life of the old man, his next-door neighbour, and a good customer to boot? These counsels prevailed, and they turned their steps towards Chancery Lane, where was to be found every variety of legal practitioner, from barrister to scrivener. Having matched the house number and described the words, Mr. Henry Ocock, conveyancer and attorney, commissioner of affidavits, painted black on two dusty windows, they climbed a wooden stair festooned with cobwebs to a landing, where an injunction to push and enter was rudely inked on a sheet of paper and affixed to a door. Obeying, they passed into a dingy little room, the entire furnishing of which consisted of a couple of deal tables with a chair to each. These were occupied by a young man and a boy, neither of whom rose at their entrance. The lad was cutting notches in a stick and whistling tunefully. The clerk, a young fellow in the early twenties, who had a mop of flaming red hair and small slit white-lashed eyes, looked at the strangers, but without lifting his head. His eyes performed the necessary motion. Mahony desired to know if he had the pleasure of addressing Mr. Henry Ocock. In reply, the redhead gave a noiseless laugh, which he immediately quenched by clapping his hand over his mouth, and shutting one eye at his junior, said, "'Nah, nor yet the Shah of Persia, nor alphabetical Foster. What can I do for you, Governor?' "'You can have the goodness to inform Mr. Ocock that I wish to see him,' flashed back Mahony. "'Singin' till-till the rum-rum-de-ay. Now then, Mike, me child, toddle!' With patent reluctance, the boy ceased his whittling, and dawdled across the room to an inner door through which he vanished, having first let his knuckles bump, as if by chance, against the wood of the panel. A second later he reappeared. "'Bosses engaged!' But Mahony surprised a lightning sign between the pair. "'No, sir. I decline to state my business to anyone but Mr. Ocock himself,' he declared hotly, in response to the red-haired man's invitation to get it off his chest." "'If you choose to find out when he will be at liberty, I will wait so long, no longer.' As the office-boy had somehow failed to hit his seat on his passage to the outer door, there was nothing left for the clerk to do but himself to undertake the errand. He lounged up from his chair, and in his case, without even the semblance of a knock, squeezed through a foot-wide aperture, in such a fashion that the two strangers should not catch a glimpse of what was going on inside. But his voice came to them through the thin partition— "'Ah, just a couple of stony-broke paddylanders.' Mahony, who had seized the opportunity to dart an angry glance at Purdy, which should say, 
This is what one gets by coming to your second-rate pettifoggers. Now let his eyes rest on his friend and critically detail the latter's appearance. The description fitted to a nicety. Purdy did, in truth, look down on his luck. Unkempt, bearded to the eyes, there he stood clutching his shapeless old cabbage-tree in mud-stained jumper and threadbare smalls, the very spit of the unsuccessful digger. Well might they be suspected of not owning the necessary to pay their way. "'All serene, mister. The boss'll take you on.' The sanctum was a trifle larger than the outer room, but almost equally bare. Half a dozen deed-boxes were piled up in one corner. Stalking in with his chin in the air, Mahony found himself in the presence of a man of his own age, who sat absorbed in the study of a document. At their entry two beady grey eyes lifted to take a brief but thorough survey, and a hand with a pencil in it pointed to the single empty chair. Mahony declined to translate the gesture, and remained standing. Under the best of circumstances it irked him to be kept waiting. Here, following on the clerk's saucy familiarity, the wilful delay made his gorge rise. For a few seconds he fumed in silence. Then, his patience exhausted, he burst out, "'My time, sir, is as precious as your own. With your permission, I will take my business elsewhere.' At these words, and at the tone in which they were spoken, the lawyer's head shot up as if he had received a blow under the chin. Again he narrowed his eyes at the couple— and this time he laid the document from him and asked suavely, "'What can I do for you?' The change in his manner, though slight, was unmistakable. Mahony had a nice ear for such refinements, and responded to the shade of difference with the promptness of one who has been on the watch for it. His irritation fell. He was ready on the instant to be propitiated. Putting his hat aside, he sat down, and having introduced himself, made reference to Ballarat and his acquaintance with the lawyer's father. "'Who directed me to you, sir, for advice on a vexatious affair in which I have had the misfortune to become involved?' With a "'Pray be seated,' Ocock rose and cleared a chair for Purdy. Resuming his seat, he joined his hands and wound them in and out. "'I think you may take it from me that no case is so unpromising, but what we shall be able to find a loophole.' Mahony thanked him with a touch of reserve. "'I trust you will still be of that opinion when you have heard the facts,' and went on. "'Myself, I do not doubt it. I am not a rich man, but serious though the monetary loss would be to me, I should settle the matter out of court were I not positive that I had right on my side.' To which Ocock returned a quick, "'Oh, quite so, of course!' Like his old father, he was a short, heavily built man, but there the likeness ended. He had a high domed forehead above a thin hooked nose. His skin was of an almost Jewish pallor. Fringes of straight jet-black hair grew down the walls of his cheeks and round his chin, meeting beneath it. The shaven upper lip was long and flat with no central markings, and helped to form a mouth that had not much more shape or expression than a slit cut by a knife in a sheet of paper. The chin was bare to the size of a crown piece, and both while he spoke and while he listened to others speaking, the lawyer caressed this patch with his fingertips, so that in the course of time it had arrived at a state of high polish, like the shell of an egg. The air with which he heard his new client out was of a non-committal kind, and Mahony, having talked his first heat off, grew chilled by the wet blanket of Ocock's silence. There was nothing in this of the frank responsiveness with which your ordinary mortal lends his ear— the brain behind the dome was, one might be sure, adding, combining, comparing, and drawing its own conclusions. 
Why should lawyers, he wondered, treat those who came to them like children, advancing only in so far as it suited them, out of the darkness where they housed among strangely worded paragraphs and obscure formulas? But these musings were cut short. Having fondled his chin for a further moment, Ocock looked up and put a question. And while he could not but admire the lawyer's acumen, this did not lessen Mahony's discomfort. All unguided, it went straight for what he believed to be the one weak point in his armour. It related to the drayman. Contrary to custom, Mahony had, on this occasion, himself recommended the driver. And as he admitted it, his ears rang again with the plaints of his stranded fellow-countryman, a wheedler from the south country, off whose tongue the familiar brogue had dripped like honey. His recommendation, he explained, had been made out of charity, he had not forced the agent to engage the man, and it would surely be a gross injustice if he alone were to be held responsible. To his relief, Ocock did not seem to attach importance to the fact, but went on to ask whether any written agreement had existed between the parties. Mm, no writing. Mm, so-so. To read his thoughts was an impossibility, but as he proceeded with his catechism, it was easy to see how his interest in the case grew. He began to treat it tenderly, warmed to it as an artist to his work, and Mahony's spirits rose in consequence. Having selected a number of minor points that would tell in their favour, Ocock dilated upon the libellous aspersion that had been cast on Mahony's good faith. "'My experience has invariably been this, Mr. Mahony. People who suggest that kind of thing, and accuse others of it, are those who are accustomed to make use of such means themselves.' In this case there may have been no goods at all. The thing may prove to have been a put-up job from beginning to end. But his hearer's start of surprise was too marked to be overlooked. Well, let us take the existence of the goods for granted. But might they not, being partly of a perishable nature, have gone bad or otherwise got spoiled on the road and not have been in a fit condition for you to receive at your end? This was credible. Mardy nodded his assent. He also added gratuitously that he had before now been obliged to reclaim on casks of mouldy mess-pork, at which Ocock ceased coddling his chin to point a straight forefinger at him, with a triumphant, "'You see!' But Purdy, who, sick and tired of the discussion, had withdrawn to the window to watch the rain zigzag in runlets down the dusty panes, and hiss and patter on the sill, Purdy puckered his lips to a sly and soundless whistle. The interview at an end, Ocock mentioned, in his frigidly urbane way, that he had recently been informed there was an excellent opening for a firm of solicitors in Ballarat. Could Mr. Mahony, as a resident, confirm the report? Mahony regretted his ignorance, but spoke in praise of the Golden City and its assured future. "'This would be most welcome news to your father, sir. I can picture his satisfaction on hearing it.' "'Golly, Dick, that's no mopoke.' was Purdy's comment as they emerged into the rain-swept street. A crafty devil, if ever I seed one. "'Henry Ocock seems to me to be a singularly able man,' replied Mahony dryly. To his thinking, Purdy had cut a poor figure during the visit. He had said no intelligent word, but had lounged lumpishly in his chair, the very picture of the countryman come up to the metropolis, and growing tired of this had gone like a restless child to thrum his fingers on the panes.' "'Oh, you bet. He'll slither you through.' "'What? Do you insinuate there's any need for slithering, as you call it?' cried Mahony. "'Why, Dick, old man, and as long as he gets you through, what does it matter?' 
"'It matters to me, sir.' The rain, a tropical deluge, was over by the time they reached the hollow. The sun shone again, hot and sticky, and people were venturing forth from their shelters to wade through beds of mud, or to cross on planks the deep, swift rivers formed by the open drains. There were several such cloudbursts in the course of the afternoon, and each time the refuse of the city was whirled past on the flood, to be left as an edging to the footpaths when the water went down. Mahony spent the rest of the day in getting together a fresh load of goods, for whether he lost or won his suit, the store had to be restocked without delay. That evening, towards eight o'clock, the two men turned out of the Lowther Arcade. The night was cold, dark and wet, and they had wound comforters around their bare throats. They were on their way to the Mechanics' Hall to hear a lecture on mesmerism. Mahony had looked forward to this all through the sorry job of choosing soaps and candles. The subject piqued his curiosity. It was the one drop of mental stimulant he could hope to extract from his visit. The theatre was out of the question. If none of the actors happened to be drunk, a fair proportion of the audience was sure to be. Part of his pleasure this evening was due to Purdy having agreed to accompany him. It was always a matter of regret to Mahony that outside the hobnob of daily life he and his friend had so few interests in common that Purdy should rest content with the coarse diversions of the ordinary digger. Then, from the black shadows of the arcade, a woman's form detached itself, and a hand was laid on Purdy's arm. "'Shout us a drink, old pal.' Mahony made a quick repellent movement of the shoulder. But Purdy, some vagrom fancy quickened in him, either by the voice which was not unrefined, or by the stealthiness of the approach, Purdy turned to look. "'Come, come, my boy, we've no time to lose.' Without raising her pleasant voice, the woman levelled a volley of abuse at Mahony, then muttered a word in Purdy's ear. "'Just half a jiff, Dick,' said Purdy. "'Oh, go ahead. I'll make up on you.' For a quarter of an hour, Mahony aired his heels in front of a public-house. Then he gave it up and went on his way. But his pleasure was damped. The inconsiderateness with which Purdy could shake him off always had a disconcerting effect on him. To face the matter squarely, the friendship between them did not mean as much to Purdy as to him. The sudden impulse that had made the boy relinquish a promising clerkship to emigrate in his wake, into this he had read more than it would hold. And as he picked his muddy steps, Mahony agreed with himself that the net result, for him, of Purdy's coming to the colony, had been to saddle him with a new responsibility. It was his lot for ever to be helping the lad out of tight places. Sometimes it made him feel unnecessarily bearish. For Purdy had the knack, common to sunny improvident natures, of taking everything that was done for him for granted. His want of delicacy in this respect was distressing. Yet in spite of it all, it was hard to bear him a grudge for long together. A well-meaning young fellow, if ever there was one. That very day how faithfully he had stuck to his side, assisting at dull discussions and duller purchasings, without once obtruding his own concerns. And here Mahony remembered their talk on the ride to town. Purdy had expressed the wish to settle down and take a wife. A poor friend that would be, who did not back him up in this intention. As he sidled into one of the front benches of a half-empty hall, the mesmerist, a corpse-like man in black, already surveyed its thinness from the platform with an air of pained surprise. Mahony decided that Purdy should have his chance. 
the heavy rains of the day and the consequent probable flooding of the ponds and the marsh, would serve as an excuse for a change of route. He would go and have a look at Purdy's sweetheart, would ride back to the diggings by way of Geelong. End of Part 1 Chapter 4